Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, let's open those up to Matthew chapter 27, please. Matthew chapter 27, we're going to be looking at verses 45 to 66 this morning. Matthew 27, verses 45 to 66. Let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, we come before you this morning grateful that we can sing your praises and that we get to open your word. We get to see the awful beauty of the cross. I pray that we would be people who are mindful of what our freedom from sin our freedom from death uh, cost while it is a free and gracious gift to us Lord it costs Jesus everything I pray that as we read through this today we are aware of what it meant for him to drink the cup of your wrath so that we could call you father again be with us as we open your word and dive deeply into it I pray that your wisdom would pervade this place and your Holy Spirit would open our hearts to the truth that we see therein, Lord. We love you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. So last week, we saw Jesus being mocked by both the Romans and the Jews as he's making his way to the cross and also while he was on the cross. In the time between his sentencing and his crucifixion, He was sentenced by Pilate around 6 o'clock on Friday morning, and he was put on the cross around 9 o'clock on Friday morning. And during that time, Jesus was handed over to the Roman soldiers. And during that time, as he's waiting to be brutally executed, you have the Roman soldiers taking that opportunity to hold a mock coronation for the king of the Jews. They remove his clothes. They put a scarlet robe on him. They twist together a crown of thorns that was pressed into his head and they put a staff in his hand and then they bow down before him, mocking him even more by saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then after this, they proceed to spit on him and they take the staff and they hit him over the head with it again and again. And after having their fun, they take the robe off of him and they put his own clothes back on him and they lead him away to crucify him. While on the cross, if that wasn't bad enough, you have many people who came by, they're yelling insults at him. Last week I, I said that these insults reveal that they don't have any idea why the Messiah actually was sent by God. They have no concept of what the Messiah actually came to do or what he was coming to rescue them from. Just a few days before, on Palm Sunday, many of these people would have been praising Jesus as he came into the city of Jerusalem because they believed that he was the conquering Messiah. They believed that he was sent by God to conquer their enemies, to restore their freedom. And they were somewhat right about the mission, but they were wrong about who the enemy was. The enemy of the people of Israel, the true enemy of all of God's people is the sin that kept them from properly honoring God. 
And it was that enemy that Jesus came to defeat for them. And by God's grace, he came to defeat that enemy for us as well. And he's going to do that by paying the price for our sin on the cross. And it's Matthew's account of Jesus on the cross that we're going to be looking at this morning. While on the cross, Jesus is going to experience the wrath of God. He's going to be experiencing the wrath of God for all of those who will put their faith in Him will never have to. For you, for me, for anyone who will proclaim the name of Jesus as Lord, we will never have to face the wrath of God because Jesus took the penalty for our sin on Himself. And as He takes that penalty on Himself, He is going to experience separation from His Father. This is something that has never happened for all of eternity. This is something that has never happened because until the moment that Christ became sin for us, there was nothing but love and adoration throughout the entirety of the Godhead. But that relationship had to be momentarily broken so that our relationship with God could be restored. And in this act... Jesus is holding out the perfect gift of his righteousness to us as he offers himself up as the perfect sacrifice in our place. And we are about to see that God accepts that sacrifice. Let's begin by looking at the moments that lead up to Jesus' death. Matthew 27, verses 45 to 50. It says, From noon until three in the afternoon, Darkness came over the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said he's calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a stick and offered him a drink. But the rest said, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. And so at this point, Jesus had been on the cross for about three hours. Mark's gospel tells us that he was crucified around nine o'clock in the morning, all right, around the third hour. The way that the Jews told time, it was a 12-hour clock but it started at sunrise so around six o'clock they would have started the clock and so they would have said one hour two hour three hours so that three hours they're looking at about nine o'clock in the morning and mark says in the third hour jesus was crucified so at nine o'clock jesus goes up onto the cross and matthew lets us know that beginning at 12 p.m all the way to 3 p.m the sky goes dark I mean, completely dark. Can you imagine how terrifying that would be? The sky goes black. There's no explanation offered as to what happens to make the sky go dark, but suddenly, for three hours, the sun just disappears in the middle of the day. Pitch black outside for three hours. Now, knowing us the way that I do, we would go through every possible 
possibility to find out what happened. We want to know exactly what the scientific explanation is for why this occurred. And with the, with the proper equipment, there might have been some natural phenomenon that would have explained the darkness that went across the land uh, that people could use to explain this away. But even if there is a natural phenomenon that explains how this happened, the book of Amos in the Old Testament tells us why it happened. Someone else might be able to explain how it happened, but the book of Amos tells us why it happened. The darkness filling the land is another part of prophecy. Found in chapter 8 of the book of Amos, we find the prophecy reading from verse 8 to verse 10. That prophecy goes like this. Because of this, won't the land quake and all who dwell in it mourn? All of it will rise like the Nile. It will surge and then subside like the Nile in Egypt. And in that day, this is the declaration of the Lord God. I will make the sun go down at noon. I will darken the land in the daytime. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will cause everyone to wear sackcloth and every head to be shaved. I will make that grief like the mourning for an only son. And its outcome like a bitter day. Darkness spreads over the whole land as God fulfills another prophecy surrounding the death of Jesus. Unfortunately for Jesus, the physical darkness is nothing compared to the spiritual darkness that he's experiencing as he goes through all of this. About three hours into this darkness, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Where are you? If you were here last week, or if you've ever read Psalm 22, you might recognize that as the first line in that psalm. We talked a few times about how that psalm, Psalm 22, correlates with Jesus' death on the cross. There have been several prophecies within that psalm that regard to Jesus' death. And Jesus quoting this opening question indicates that Jesus' relationship with the Father has been broken. As Jesus becomes sin for us and as He endures the wrath of God on behalf of His people, He must be separated from the Father. The Father will not be in the presence of sin. He, Jesus, is consuming the cup that he begged the Father to take away. But since there was no other way, and since Jesus bends the knee to the Father's will at every turn, Jesus experiences this so that you and I don't have to. The full wrath of God bore down on the Son, and the Father turned his back on the one who he had spent eternity loving. After this, we see again that the people around the cross, they don't understand what's happening. They just don't, they don't get it. Some think he's calling out to Elijah, and there is a similarity in the original language with what he's saying and, and Elijah's name. So it does, it could be confused with Elijah. They stated that they wanted to wait and see if Elijah would come and rescue Jesus. 
But the mistake that these people are making, and they've been making this from the very beginning of all of this, the mistake that they are making is believing that Jesus needed to be saved from this circumstance. Jesus willingly went to the cross. Now he had that moment in the garden where he asked if the cup could be removed, if there was another way to go about doing this, let's do that. Because that's the rational thought process of anyone that's going before God's wrath and is getting ready to take on the full brunt of that. That is the normal response. You should fear the wrath of God. And so he was willing to do it. He said, if there's another way around it, let's go that way. But if not, I'll drink every last drop of it. Your will be done, not mine. And so Jesus willingly goes to the cross. Jesus willingly endured God's wrath. And he stayed on the cross until the sacrifice was made and until the atonement was complete. He was not looking to be saved. At any moment, he could have come down from the cross. At any moment, he could have stopped from going to the cross. And these people just show over and over again, they do not understand. Jesus does not need to be saved. We do. And what kept Jesus on the cross is my sin. Is your sin. Is their sin. Jesus stays on the cross until the atonement was complete. We have to look at John's gospel to see what Jesus cries out here. But when we look at John 19, verse 30, we see that Jesus declares, it is finished. It is finished. The atonement is complete. The sacrifice has been made. And once this happens, Jesus bows his head and gives up his spirit. Jesus decided the moment that he would die. Not the Romans, not the Jews. Jesus decided the moment that he would die. He's not hanging on the cross begging Elijah for help. He's not waiting on Elijah to come and get him. He's waiting until the atonement is done. John 10 verse 7 and 18, 17 and 18 says, this is the, why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. It doesn't look like it to us. It doesn't look like it to the Jews or the Romans. But Jesus is in complete control here. None of this is outside of his control. And the Father looks on the sacrifice, and we can see immediately in verses 51 to 54 that the sacrifice is acceptable to the Father. Let's look at that. Verse 51. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to, to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection, entering the holy city, and appeared to many. When the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified and said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. 
text. The first thing that we see that shows that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice is that the curtain to the sanctuary is torn in two from the top to the bottom. And you might be thinking, well, there was an earthquake, right? Things get broken and torn up in earthquakes. So, I mean, couldn't the curtain have been torn in the process of an earthquake? I mean, you know, it's a curtain. Maybe something fell on it. You don't know. Well, there are several things about this curtain tearing that shows that God is pleased with the sacrifice of Jesus. First off, this is no ordinary curtain. Right? This isn't some frilly thing that you have in your house to keep the sunlight out. Right? This curtain, from, from something that I read this week, said this curtain was 60 feet high. It was 30 feet wide. And the material was supposedly as thick as a man's palm. All right, because of the way that it was woven. It was supposedly as thick as a man's palm. They said in the thing that I read that if it was wet, it required 300 men to lift it. Okay, so this isn't you know, something you're pulling back with a little tassel and having it hooked on the hook on the side of the, the wall. All right, this is a massive, beastly curtain. So to tear this piece of fabric, even if something fell on it, what's, what's going to tear that by falling on it? On top of that, we need to consider that this curtain covered the entrance to the Holy of Holies. All right, this is the place where only the high priest was allowed to enter, and that was only once a year to offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people of Israel. And to do that, he had to go through a serious ritual cycle that would purify him of all his sins. And, like, don't do it wrong. If you go into that place and you have not correctly gone through the cleansing rituals, or if you go into that place and you do something wrong while you're in there, you die. I mean, there's no messing around when you're in the Holy of Holies. But now, that curtain, which was meant to separate God from the rest of the people of Israel, has been torn in two, and it was torn in two from the top to the bottom, which means that it was God who did the tearing. God himself removed the separation from the Holy of Holies. The way to atone for sin no longer comes through bloody sacrifice after bloody sacrifice after bloody sacrifice in the temple of Jerusalem. Now the atonement for sin comes through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. One bloody sacrifice that covers all sin for all time for all people who will put their faith in Him. The only thing now that stands in our way from being in the presence of God is our pride and our unwillingness to lay down our sin. That's it. There's no more curtain. There's no more ritual. Jesus did everything necessary so that we did not have to do anything except put our faith in Him. Along with this earthquake and the tearing of the curtain, in the temple, we also see that there are many bodies of the saints that were raised from the dead. Right, a little foretaste of the resurrection. 
A little foretaste showing that Jesus has conquered death. These people would have been those who had walked by faith in God even before Jesus came to put their faith in. But after Jesus' death, these people were raised back to life. In these resurrections, there's an author named Derek Tinball. He states, The raising of these holy ones is a foretaste of the resurrection to which all believers can look forward. Through the death of Jesus, a new day has arrived, a day when death has been defeated by death, and resurrection to life eternal has been made possible. So apparently, all of this that happens after Jesus' death was enough to get the attention of the centurion and those who were around him because they declare, truly, this man was the Son of God. All right, so we have the tearing of the curtain. We have the dead people coming to life physically. And it appears that right here we have a dead man coming to life spiritually as well. We have a Roman centurion who has no reason whatsoever to put his faith in Jesus. Is now looking on him as the son of God. You see that God the Father is pleased in Jesus' sacrifice because he is apparently bringing new life to the Gentiles immediately after his death. This tells us that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient to cover all sins and that his sacrifice is open to anyone who will accept it. Anyone. And then after Jesus' death, Matthew goes on to tell us about a group of women who were disciples of Jesus who have been watching these events from a distance. Across the four Gospels, we get the names of six different women who were there. Each Gospel has a few different people there. But if you put them all together, we see six different women who are named. Uh, but it seems like that there are many more than that who are there watching from a distance as Jesus is crucified. And it's a really understated section. I really wish we had a little bit more information about these women and, and what was going on there. But it does go to show just how integral women were to Jesus' ministry. It says that they took care of Jesus. It says they walked with Jesus. It says they were there when, when many of the other disciples weren't there. Let's look at it. Verses 55 and 56. Many women who had followed Jesus from Galilee and looked after him were there watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. So that's all we get. We get a few more names if we read the other Gospels. But the women in this group were friends and family of Jesus. And Jesus and Matthew says that they cared for Jesus' needs. They called him Lord. We're going to see that several of them are going to be first on the scene at Jesus' resurrection that we'll look at next week. I mean, they're there. They're there at the crucifixion when most of the apostles have abandoned Jesus. There's only one apostle that is spoken of that is at the cross, and that's the apostle John. And we see Jesus hand his mother over to John. This is your mother. This is your son. All right, so that's the only apostle that seems to be there, but there is a group of women who are there watching all of this go on. And so 
we see that these are exemplary disciples of Jesus. Another disciple that stepped up when help was needed was Joseph of Arimathea. We meet him in verses 57 to 61. It says, When it was evening, a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph came, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Then Pilate ordered that it be released. So Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean, fine linen, and placed it in his new tomb, which he had cut into the rock. He left after rolling a great stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were seated there facing the tomb. So if we read the other gospel accounts of this, we see that Joseph was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin who had uh, looked forward to the coming kingdom of God. Luke tells us that. Mark also tells us that. At some point in Jesus' ministry, Joseph came to faith in Jesus as the Messiah, but we don't know the details of that. We just know that he became a follower. He became a disciple of Christ. And all we really know about Joseph is that he did not agree with the Sanhedrin when they came up with this plan to betray Jesus. When they came up with this plan to have him crucified, he was in opposition to this plan. And now that Jesus is dead, he has made it a point to ensure that Jesus receives a proper burial. Now, this could be a very difficult endeavor for him, all right, because the people that were crucified by Rome were rarely, if ever, allowed to be buried. Typically, what Rome would do is leave you up on the cross until you rotted away. All right, they want you to understand, like, you do not come against Rome. If you do, this will happen to you, and you don't get a, bur- a burial. You stay up here until you just dissolve away. And so if you were executed for treason, that is multiplied infinitely. Like, you're not getting down from the cross if you are executed for treason. And that's the charge that Jesus had brought against him. But we see that Joseph, one, he has some pull in Jerusalem because he got access to Pilate. Somehow, this man was able to go speak to the governor. All right, so that means that he had some pull Uh, at some point so he's a prominent member of Jewish society and we also see that Pilate is probably experiencing some guilt because he allows Jesus who had been charged with treason to be taken down and to be buried so he's either experiencing guilt or he's just like well I mean I knew this guy wasn't really guilty of treason and so he allows Joseph of Arimathea to take the body into his care And after ensuring that Jesus' body was properly taken care of, Joseph placed Jesus in a new tomb which he had cut into the rock. And all of this, yet again, is evidence of prophecy being fulfilled. One after another, we see the dominoes falling as all of these prophecies that God had given hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born, we see all the stuff coming to fruition. This comes from Isaiah 53, 8 and 9, which says this. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death. Because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Right? One prophecy after the other coming true in the death of Jesus. 
All the pieces that God declared would happen surrounding the death of the Messiah were faithfully fulfilled every step of the way as Jesus made his way to the cross while he was on the cross and even after his death, even to the point of being buried in a rich man's tomb. Right? Some people make the argument that Jesus said what he did and did what he did so that he could make sure that prophecy was fulfilled. But here we go. We see him die and prophecy is still fulfilled even without his making efforts to see that it's done. All of it came together just as the Old Testament had predicted. In fact, regarding Jesus' death, there's one big thing left to see. And the religious leaders, they remember what that prediction was. They remember that Jesus predicted that he would be resurrected three days after his death. They don't believe it's actually going to happen. But they remember that there was a prophecy about that and they're afraid that the disciples will come and take the body so that they can imply that Jesus rose from the dead. We see that in verses 62 to 66. It says, The next day, which followed the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that while this deceiver was still alive, he said, After three days I will rise again. So give orders that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come, steal him, and tell the people he's been raised from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Take guards, Pilate told them. Go and make it as secure as you know how. They went and secured the tomb by setting a seal on the stone and placing the guards. When I look at this, it... I'm easily amused. It doesn't take a whole lot to make me laugh at things. But it strikes me as funny how the religious leaders are trying to go the extra mile to ensure that the disciples don't try to pull one over on everybody by stealing the body. Right? Like, they have gotten so used to being part of deception and lies, especially for their own personal gain, that they just expect everyone to act the way that they would. Right? If I told you that that was going to happen and I wasn't sure that it was going to happen, I would try to make sure that it was going to happen. And so we need to make sure that they don't do what I would do. So they manipulate so much to ensure that Jesus found his way into the grave that they'd want to make sure that there isn't any counter-manipulation on anyone else's part to ensure that he comes up out of the grave. And so to keep that from happening, they asked Pilate to send guards to guard the tomb, and they want him to seal it as well. And so Pilate agrees to sealing the tomb and to putting a group of guards there until after the allotted time has passed. And now we wait. Now we wait to see what's going to happen. And it's in these days of waiting that we see the disciples struggle. Jesus told them that this exact thing was going to happen over and over again. I'm going to die. I'm going to be handed over by the religious leaders. I'm going to die. And on the third day, I'm going to be raised again. What, four times we saw that in the book of Matthew? And they just couldn't hear it. I don't understand why they couldn't hear it, but they just didn't seem to get it. They don't respond well during these first few days after Jesus' death. You would expect after spending this much time and after having one time after the other, four different times having him predict that this was going to happen, 
that you would just kind of see them sit, sitting back, you know, eating popcorn, just waiting to see the show. Right? But that's not what we see. We don't really see a whole lot about what goes on with the disciples. We do know that two of them were found walking away. They're going back home to Emmaus. Right? In Luke 24, they've decided to go home. Right? It's over now. The, the guy that we thought was the Messiah is dead. So it's all over. And so they decide to go home. Now I would imagine there's, there's got to be some similar thoughts running through the minds of everybody at this point in time. Nobody is sitting there waiting at the tomb expecting him to come back. But the story is not over. You've got Thursday night and Friday, which are terrible experiences for the disciples. But Resurrection Sunday is coming for them. The good news is, for us, that Resurrection Sunday is every single Sunday. We are currently living in the reality that Jesus is alive. He's alive now. Now and forevermore. And so we get to worship as followers of Christ whose sins are forgiven because every single day is Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday, every week, every day. Christ is alive. He's at the right hand of God the Father. And we get to experience that every day and we get to worship Him with that knowledge. And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Christ and you are ready for that worship, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. And I would be happy to walk you through that if you're not sure what that looks like. Or you can pray to receive Christ right where you are. The Bible says in Romans 10 verse 9 that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. If you will repent of your sin, God is faithful to forgive. And when we do this, the angels in heaven rejoice Every time a sinner comes from being dead to being alive in Christ. And I pray that many people would do that either here today or through our testimonies as we go from this place. But now we wait. We wait for next Sunday to see what Jesus is going to do to see the last fulfillment of this prophecy as he comes back from the grave. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you are true to your word every step of the way. That we have no reason to fear because you set stuff into motion thousands of years before Jesus ever came. And as he has made promises into our future, we know because you are a promise-keeping God that we can trust in every one of those promises. And we know that because you promised that Jesus is coming back three days later and that he did that there is no promise that you won't keep to us especially the promise that we find forgiveness of sin if we will repent so lord i pray that this, the holy spirit would be in this place be in the hearts of people listening online and that there would be a burning a, a desire to see to see salvation if not in ourselves because we are already saved in the people around us that you have sovereignly placed around us 
so that we could proclaim the beautiful message of this gospel. Jesus went to the cross so that we didn't have to. Jesus took your wrath so that I didn't didn't have to. So Lord, help, help me have the ability to share that with everybody that I come in contact with. And I pray that for the rest of the church as well. Lord, I love you. It's in your son's precious name that I pray. Amen.